Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and it's finally here. The event that unofficially heralds the return of sultry, steamy summer. Memorial Day weekend. And to everyone hitting the road or otherwise traipsing out of doors over the next few days, we are dedicating today's show to you. Our theme, Breaking a Sweat. We'll head out on the Potomac River and find out why so many Washingtonians are getting into stand-up paddleboarding. They feel like they just got a little vacation or like they got away with something. And we'll hit the streets of Columbia Heights for a game of sidewalk chess. Anybody that come up here and want to play, we'll play them. Plus, we'll consider things that might make you break out in a cold sweat, like asking strangers for money and flying halfway around the world. And you've never even left your hometown. Before the trips, I was really shy and reserved. But on the trip, I became more open, like I introduced myself more. But first, we're going to meet some folks for whom the old expression, sweating buckets, is a little bit too close for comfort. Like in, in elementary school, a lot of times when you write, you put your hand on your piece of paper and then move your hand. And so when I'd raise my hand, there'd be a mark. And then it's like, oh, that's weird. This is Cecily Ober. And I did gymnastics when I was in elementary school, and that was always embarrassing because, like, you're walking on mats without shoes on, and it's like, oh, like, I'm leaving footprints. Like, this is really weird. And all this weirdness, as the 18-year-old Pennsylvania native would say, was mystifying every doctor she and her parents consulted. Some thought she might have hormonal problems. Others guessed it was something with my diet. But not one of them could make the sweating stop. So in 2008, when Cecily was 12 and soon to enter that grand social experiment known as high school... Eventually, I just kind of gave up and was going to resign just the fact that I have this weird thing that prohibited me from shaking people's hands or really feeling comfortable with interaction with people. But then she and her parents found this guy. My name is Dr. Malcolm Brock, and I'm a thoracic surgeon here at Johns Hopkins Hospital. A thoracic surgeon whose interests happen to include the condition he eventually diagnosed Cecily with, one that affects 3% of the population, hyperhidrosis. People will come in and tell you they can actually just stick out their hands and their hands will drip. Or all of a sudden you'll see you're sweating so much that you can fill up a small beaker in about five minutes. Just to give you an idea of how that compares to people who don't have hyperhidrosis, you use this thing called a vapometer to measure how much water vapor is coming off the skin. And the last time Dr. Brock tested himself... My level was about 25. When Cecily Ober got her levels checked back in 2008... They were roughly 250 to 300. It's about 10 times normal. Many treatments are available to help combat overactive sweat glands, like topical sprays and ointments. Medication that you ingest in pill form. And Botox injection therapy. It has to be repeated, usually in a six to nine month frame. There's also a new non-invasive treatment. Microwave thermolysis, otherwise known as mirror dry. That uses electromagnetic energy to attack sweat glands. But what Cecily Ober wound up opting for was a surgical procedure. A thoracic sympatectomy. Where you pinpoint the nerves that regulate sweating in problem areas. The hands, primarily. Also the underarm and feet. And you seal them off. The surgery worked like a dream for Cecily. But Dr. Brock was noticing that in many other patients, a drier body wasn't the only outcome. 
What we noticed was that when we did the sympathectomy, or just before we did the sympathectomy, about 40% of our patients were on antidepressant or anti-anxiety disorder medication. And after these patients received surgery? Half of them came off their medication. So he thought maybe the medical community had been getting things backwards. Maybe with these patients, it wasn't so much a case of their anxiety causing their sweating. But rather, their sweating was causing their anxiety. And that's when Dr. Brock decided it was time to zero in on the complex issue of hyperhidrosis by founding a center dedicated to fighting it. The Johns Hopkins Center for Sweat Disorders would be the first in the world to approach excessive sweating in a patient-centered, multidisciplinary way, with thoracic specialists, dermatologists, neurologists, even plastic surgeons. But we quickly realized that psychology and psychiatrists were very important. And so that was sort of the first phone call. And one of the first to receive that call... I'm a psychologist. I didn't know that hyperhidrosis was a thing. ...was Carissa Perry Parrish. Before I got involved in the Sweat Disorder Center, I've been doing um, behavior medicine consultations with general pediatric dermatology. And even for these little kids that I was seeing, like three- and four-year-olds were already experiencing social rejection because of hand sweating. So, you know, like I'm talking to the parents, I'm like, so how are, how's your four-year-old doing? And they're like, well, the other kids in her class don't want to hold hands with her, like little kids skipping down the hall or playing ring around the rosy. Since the Center for Sweat Disorders opened in 2013, all new patients have received a referral to the behavioral medicine team. And while many report emotional distress right off the bat, Perry Parrish says some claim their hyperhidrosis isn't affecting their emotional well-being at all. But when she and her team pose a question like... Do you think it's affecting what you're having to do to get ready for work? The patient will respond. Well, yeah, because I have to make sure I can't wear that color of shirt because then all of my customers will see that I'm sweating. And when I'm shaking somebody's hand, I'm watching their face to see if they notice that my hand is sweaty and noticing if they're going to wipe their hand on their pants. So I take it for granted, like how much they're doing to kind of cope with this medical condition that a lot of folks don't know is actually an organic problem. But then there are patients like 17-year-old Silver Spring resident Avi Goldsmith, who was just diagnosed with hyperhidrosis and is considering getting surgery. Avi's pretty frank about how hyperhidrosis has been affecting his life. One of, like, the things a lot of kids do in my school is this thing called, like, dapping up. It's, like, a more, like, I guess, modern, like, handshake. It's, like, not as formal. And, like, when my hands are sweaty, like, one of my greatest fears is that somebody is going to, you know, do that. And it's, like, just thinking I'm getting nervous about somebody wanting to, you know, be friendly. And I feel like, you know, I'm different and weird and stuff. There's that word again, weird. We heard it with Cecily Ober, who used to look at her excessive sweating and say, That's weird. Or, This is really weird. But these days, her doctors say she's an excellent example of a patient who is anything but... When Dr. Brock tests Cecily's hands on the vapometer now, instead of registering in the 250 to 300 range... Now it's around 40, 43, which is very normal. (laughs) And with that normality comes a confidence she'd never known. She's more comfortable gesturing when she talks, and when she meets new people, she eagerly extends her hand. In a way, when it comes to Cecily's life now, she no longer sweats the small stuff. Or the big The Johns Hopkins Center for Sweat Disorders is starting a clinical trial using the Maradry procedure on 18 to 29-year-olds with hyperhidrosis. For more information and to find a video of Dr. Malcolm Brock discussing hyperhidrosis and its various treatments, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
We'll head to D.C. now to meet a district resident named Kathy Summers. As Summers was growing up in Southern California, sports were her life. But when her husband got a job in Washington and the couple relocated, Summers says her outdoorsy lifestyle ground to a halt. Moving to D.C., I thought that I was going to suffocate until I discovered the river. And that river, the Potomac, quickly became her go-to spot for her sport of choice, stand-up paddleboarding. She shipped three boards from California to her home in Mount Pleasant, and she's been out on the water ever since. Emily Berman headed to Summer's home base, the Washington Canoe Club in Georgetown, to see what's behind this paddleboarding boom. It's a Sunday afternoon and so hot out that Kathy Summers and I have to dance around the dock to keep our feet from burning. Okay, so let's start with the paddle. Summers is holding what looks like a canoe paddle, though a little longer and lighter weight. She sets the paddle down on a giant surfboard floating next to the dock. The board is 11 feet long and two and a half feet wide, but it's not a surfboard. It's a stand-up paddle board, wider and more stable. I kneel down and move one knee and then the other onto the board. And then go ahead and wiggle back and forth. So you can see it rolls, but it's not going to flip. We'll stand up when you feel comfortable. After paddling on my knees for a few minutes, I'm ready to stand. So just pretend you're in a yoga studio. You know, tuck your toes under, just like you're about to do a down dog. One foot up. Now grab the paddle. Look up. Excellent. Put the paddle in the water. Good. Just keep paddling. Just paddle on that left side. You're fine. Breathe. Breathing's good. (laughs) How's it feel? Feels pretty good. Yeah. She's taught hundreds of people to stand-up paddle, or SUP, as some call it, and organizes a yearly race on the Potomac River. Now she's more focused on racing than teaching, but there are other instructors out there, like Greg Miller, who runs Paddle Stroke SUP in Potomac. People need to get out of that stress of the city and find something like stand-up paddleboarding. It's a huge stress reliever. Miller was one of the first stand-up paddlers on the Potomac. He says it's not only a way to change up your fitness routine, but it's also become a popular corporate team-building exercise. The best thing about it, he says, is that pretty much anyone can do it. You you know, unless you're you're falling off every three seconds, you're going to have fun on the board, cruising on the board, even if you don't even paddle right. The Keybridge Boathouse, a longtime destination for kayak and canoe rentals, bought its first stand-up paddle boards three years ago, 10 in total. This season, the boathouse is renting out more than 180 to locals like Matt Gravel and Will Imbo. I've never done it before, but uh, very excited to try it. They've rented kayaks on the Potomac before, but this, they say, seems more interesting. It's more social in a way. It's a better way to get tan as well, I think. And it's more of a workout. This idea of standing and paddling has been around for quite a while. As far back as 3,000 years ago, Peruvian fishermen built small crafts out of reeds called caballitos de totora, in which they stood up and paddled around to fish. The more modern paddleboarding craze took off in California 10 years ago when surfers began to stand on their boards as a way to train when the water was flat. Back at the canoe club, Kathy Summers points to her friend, Lisa Enloe, and another stand-up paddling enthusiast, Lisa's dog, Maddie. Maddie wears a life jacket and hops right on the board. There you go. What do you think? As they paddle away, Summers and I sit on the dock, dipping our toes in the water. One of the things that I hear 
all the time when people come out here is they feel like they just got a little vacation or like they got away with something. It's been a wonderful thing to watch river use just grow and grow and grow. Even as the sport gains in popularity here and around the world, Summer says, in the end, it's just you and the board and the river. I'm Emily Berman. If you're looking to step onto a board yourself, we have links to a bunch of places where you can do just that. Head to our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, the jitters of first-time jet-setting. D.C. kids who've never left the region fly halfway across the world. I don't think I was nervous about being there. It was just like the plane ride there and being out of my comfort zone. And a group of college students make a big decision about which local nonprofits deserve to get funding. I think the nonprofits are actually taken a little aback when they sort of see the professionalism behind the students. But at the end of the day, they're running the most professional process possible. That's just ahead here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week's theme is breaking a sweat. And up next, we're going to explore some of the more nerve-wracking, perspiration-provoking moments in life, like making a big nonprofit pitch for money to a bunch of college kids. First, though, we're going to look at something that invokes fear in a whole lot of people, flying on an airplane. But our story isn't about flying phobia. No, it's about taking that first big plane trip when you've never ventured far outside your own city. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza has more about a study abroad program at Baloo High School that's taking students on brand new adventures thousands of miles away from home. 17-year-old Shawquanette Davis has just come back from the Dominican Republic. She's at school sharing photos with other students. This picture right here this is the mural we painted, and it basically says, love your mother. And the top is in Spanish, but I don't know what it says. And it had like Davis a and other travelers got that. new passports, read up about local customs, and made it through what everyone agreed was the scariest part, the plane ride. First time I've been on a plane, the first time I traveled out the country, and I got a window seat. 17-year-old <laughs> Laurentia Odoms was with a group that traveled to London and Paris last year. In France, I was scared that since I couldn't really communicate with them because I don't speak French, they would think it was something wrong with me. Alison Borger, the Spanish teacher at Baloo High School, is like a mother hen around her students. But when she first came here, she was surprised by how little her students had traveled. And she doesn't just mean around the U.S. I often meet students and they haven't even been to the National Mall. Absolutely. I have to be very careful about how I ask students about the mall because they're like, which one, Pentagon? <laughs> Iverson? <laughs> like, so five years ago, Borga started a travel abroad program, and so far approximately 50 students have gone to Ghana, Spain, and Ecuador, among other countries, usually for a week or 10 days. 
Sometimes, as 18-year-old Isaiah Prophet discovered when he went to the Dominican Republic, you have to go far away to learn things about yourself. I wanted to go to prove to myself, ain't nothing special about that. But then, like, once we actually got out there, my views changed totally. Just everything about that country, it just makes you happy. Odom says they did a lot of sightseeing, but not every experience was fun. Odom's once got on a train, not realizing her group wasn't coming with her. I was so scared for my life. Like, I thought I, thought I was going to get snatched or something like that because it's a lot of stories. Luckily, someone on the train spoke English and helped her out. Odom says she would never have asked for help in D.C. I would never ask for help on the metro here, even if I didn't know where I was going. Why you know? not? Something about American people, I think that we always keep our guard up. Like, we... I don't want to get cursed out or have someone being angry at me for no reason just because I asked the question. But the stereotype of America in different countries is that Americans are very, very friendly. You're like shaking your head. Is it like a, is it like a certain city they're talking about? Stories come spilling out. One time I had this experience with selling Girl Scout cookies. I was asking people in my neighborhood if they wanted to buy some. And, like, they just closed their doors on me. I was like, no, I don't have any money. And the next thing I see is I'm going to the store buying stuff. I was like, you know what? Okay, I'm never asking anyone again. I usually don't ask people for help just because sometimes I see, like, where that could get you. Like, one time I saw... Like, a white man, he asked, like, this group of boys for, like, where the, where the mailbox at. They gave him instructions. But then afterward, I heard him laughing and I overheard him say he about to get whooped because they gave him the directions to go into, like, a bad neighborhood. Odom says she would not usually help anyone else, but that was before the trip. Today, if I got on the metro, someone would have asked me, I would, ha- I would help them happily. I think I would even walk them to where they had to go because, like, I, I <laughs> That was one of the worst experiences of my life, being lost like that, like that never happened to me before. Teacher Alison Borger says students almost seem to go through a physical transformation during their travels. I remember reading Isaiah's journal where we asked them to reflect on what sort of contributions they think they can make while they're abroad. And he said, very honestly, I really don't see myself as someone that has a lot of skills to contribute. I don't see myself as someone who is going to make an impact. But while helping a family to build a house, Prophet says he realized he did have something to offer. Everyone had something to offer. He watched six-year-old children who helped mix cement. It told me a, a real good definition of hard work and work ethic. Usually when I do work, I don't like to get dirty, but then... The more dirt that you got on your clothes, I mean, the more hard work you done put in. Mm-hmm. So that's how I viewed it. If I wasn't dirty, I ain't do my job right. Students also realized they had many blessings. They have more money than people in many other parts of the world. Women here can go to school. And hands down, American pizza is the best. But perhaps the biggest lesson these students have learned is to reach out to others. Before the trips, I was really shy and reserved, and I only talked to people I knew, really. But on the trip, when I actually got out on the trip and started meeting new people, I became more open, like I introduced myself more, I smiled more. I don't think I ever smiled so much on that trip here. And I'm, people are always saying, I don't smile enough here. So I'm, I'm trying to get myself, condition myself to smile more, because I actually do believe that happiness can just be a smile away. Oh, my God. Uh, I am so glad I met you after your trip. <laughs> <laughs> it
costs approximately $3,000 for each student to participate in the program. They hold bake sales, sell T-shirts and auction student art. The next group is going to Zambia for three weeks and students are frantically fundraising for that trip. 16-year-old Yasmin Roper can't wait. I'm sitting here just listening to them and I'm just getting so excited about where I'm going. Like I want to see what experiences I can get from going to another country. The students continue to flip through photos and Davis points to one of them on the beach in the Dominican Republic. It made me feel warm inside. You know, like that feeling where you see something new and like it's something you really want to do, but you can't do it because you never probably think you'll get the chance to do it. And then when you finally do it, it's just like a breathtaking sight. That's how I felt. I'm Kavita Cardoza. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our next story in today's Breaking a Sweat show is about an experience many nonprofit leaders in D.C. have no doubt wrung their hands over, asking for money. But in this case, it's asking college kids for money. Tyler Daniels brings us the story of a college program that's engaging students, himself among them, in a kind of philanthropy 101, where they're helping local nonprofits in the process. It's a typical Wednesday night at George Washington University. Students are filing into Dr. Peter Konworski's Seminar in Human Services. The Human Services Program at GW is designed, it's sort of an interdisciplinary major. The goal of it is to produce future citizen leaders. This class is sort of their senior capstone, and ultimately we run a grant competition, which ran about six weeks and collected 25 grants. And then the board group manages the selection of the grantees and also the allocation of the funding. Out in the hallway, there are eight guest speakers all representing different nonprofit organizations. They're here to make a pitch to these students who have $10,000 to give away from the Learning by Giving Foundation. One by one, the presenters file in. They each get eight minutes to state their case. First up is Elizabeth Darty from Keene, D.C., which provides recreational opportunities to people with developmental and physical disabilities. My name is Elizabeth. I'm here representing Keene Greater DC. And basically what I want to do is just tell you three important things about Keene. And they are what makes us unique and different. Then there's Rachel Callahan from Common Good City Farm. I mean, I have a little slideshow in the background. I just wanted you guys to see the farm, to see the kids on the farm, to get an idea of what's going on. So I hope it doesn't distract Later on, Dan Hoagland from the Washington Area Bicyclist Association tries a different strategy. I wanted to ask you a few questions. So just answer raising your hand. How many of you guys know how to ride a bicycle? All of the students raise their hands. Good. Makes it easy for me. How many of you, think back all those many long years ago and somebody was teaching you how to ride a bicycle. How many of you were taught by that person how to ride on city streets? About three people raised their hands. Uh, nobody in this country is taught how to ride a bicycle uh, on city streets as a child. It's Another presenter, Andrea Stark from Playworks DC, asks the students to get up and play a game the same type of game she's trying to encourage in D.C. schools at recess. This game is called um, Rochambeau Rockstar. We're going to play one game of rock, paper, scissors, one, two, three, and shoot. Her strategy is a hit, at least with student Sean Lynch. Even just the way they presented the grant, 
was much more interactive and much more just like, I feel like the whole class's focus was on it. After about a half an hour, the students come to a consensus. They're going to give funding to four of the eight organizations. Team four, and then the rest two. Four organizations we all like, they're all getting money that is going to provide something sustainable and getting less money that proposes doesn't The winners are Keen DC, Playworks, Common Good City Farm, and Brainy Camps. So all in favor of 2000 for all except Keen, which will get 4000 Please say, raise your hand. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And just like that, college students gain nonprofit foundation experience while the local organizations receive funding. For Konworski, this was exactly the goal. I think the nonprofits are actually taken a little aback when they sort of see the professionalism behind the students. But at the end of the day, they're running the most professional process possible to, to support nonprofits in the Washington area. And what do the organizations competing for the money think? Elizabeth Darty from Keene, D.C., the organization that got the biggest slice of the funding pie, is a fan. I love it. I love that it's becoming more prominent on college campuses and that more people are thinking about it and realizing Yes, they can be philanthropists, but they also can have careers in the nonprofit sector. GW and its neighbor Georgetown are among three dozen colleges and universities across the country offering these sorts of philanthropy classes. And the Learning by Giving Foundation offers an online version open to anyone interested in learning how to give. I'm Tyler Daniels. now for our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit La Plata, Maryland, and Reston Town Center in Virginia. My name is Bill Eckman. I'm 84 years old, and I live in the Arundel Hills neighborhood of the town of La Plata. La Plata, Maryland is about 25 miles south of Washington, D.C., at the intersection of Route 301 and Route 6 in the center of Charles County. It's the county seat. The name of Plata came from the name of La Plata Farm. Mr. Chapman, who provided most of the land that La Plata was built from, apparently had traveled to South America and was entranced by the La Plata River, I think, in uh, South America. Well, many people probably are aware of it, but in 1927, a tornado went through La Plata and destroyed the school building, and 15 school children died in that tornado going through. In 2002, another tornado came through La Plata, only this one was much larger. When it came through, it came right through the center of the business district and wiped out a swath of about 400 yards wide the whole way through town. And it was amazing to me the way the people in the town all got together and rebuilt it. And you go through town today and you would not have any idea there was ever a tornado went through the town of La Plata. The final thing I'm going to say that makes La Plata unique, I think, is the fact that it is within 25 miles of the Capitol building, and yet it is a small town environment. We still have concerts on the lawn of the uh, town hall, and you're still living in a small town.
My name is Robert Gowdy. I'm 55 years old and I live in Reston Town Center. Reston Town Center is Reston's downtown, if you will, in between Washington, D.C. and the Dulles International Airport uh, along the toll road. The history of Reston and Reston Town Center is coinciding this year. Uh, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of our founder, Bob Simon, the 50th anniversary of Reston, and the 25th anniversary of Reston Town Center. So I get asked a lot, why is Reston Town Center unique? And I think you know the obvious answer is that it's this slice of urban America in the middle of suburbia. But I think a more complete answer is that we're in a unique physical location where we're between the nation's capital and an international airport. So that gives us geographically a very unique space to occupy. For me to move from Reston Town Center would take a lot. Uh, my wife and I talk about spending the rest of our lives here. We heard from Bill Ekman in La Plata and Robert Gowdy in Reston Town Center. By the way, just last month we aired an interview with Reston founder Robert Simon. You can find a link to that piece on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org, or you can send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. In a minute, a local writer inherits an eccentric literary legacy. Having people wander around mumbling to themselves and then locking themselves in rooms for long periods of time demanding silence didn't actually shed a lot of light on the process. It's bookend, our monthly look at the D.C. writing scene. Plus, a dance legend takes on a challenging topic, war and the people who heal the wounds of battle. I heard from historians that, you know, don't compare wars, don't do it like that, da-da-da. It's not, it's like, they're so different. But in the end, I'm actually glad that I made the link. That's all coming up on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are breaking a sweat. Speaking of which... I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. You may recognize that voice, and you may recognize those words. It's the legendary blood, toil, tears, and sweat speech Winston Churchill delivered to the House of Commons 74 years ago this month, on May 13, 1940. It was the dawn of World War II, and in the newly appointed Prime Minister's very first House address, he expressed his determination to lead his country to victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. But without victory, there is no survival. Some historians say Churchill's statement is just about the greatest call to arms ever. But when he says victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, the woman we're about to meet thinks a lot about those costs and that terror. So much so, in fact, that she's exploring them in a brand new production at Arena Stage. Healing Wars, which opens June 6th, explores how war can affect the people deeply entrenched in it, like soldiers and the individuals who heal them. A nurse that we met who served in Vietnam, she's probably told us the most about what it was like and the stress. 
And, you know, she really describes a lot of anger, anger at God, anger at how we're in the situation that we're in. Liz Lerman is the legendary choreographer who founded Tacoma Park's Dance Exchange back in 1976. She's spent the past three years traveling the country, devising healing wars with a team of collaborators. She says inspiration first struck when she learned the 150th anniversary of the Civil War was on its way. It hadn't even occurred to me that it was coming. I mean, it just wasn't on my radar at all. That led her to dream up the National Civil War Project, a multi-city, multi-year, multidisciplinary project that will eventually give birth to a dozen new works about or inspired by the Civil War, a subject Lerman's been studying pretty much incessantly. I was surprised to find out that there's documentation for at least 400 women dressing as men and being soldiers. But when I started looking into the um, women and the women soldiers, I also came across all the nurses. And I began to think it would be interesting to look at warfare and conflict and the aftermath from the context of not just healing, but the healers, the people responsible for it, and really wondering, well, how could they handle themselves in the midst of all that carnage? In Healing Wars, Lerman has brought on performers to play multiple roles, including nurses, medics, and soldiers from a number of historic wars, from the Civil War to today. The day I head to Southwest D.C. to attend a rehearsal, Tamara Hurwitz-Pullman is portraying legendary Red Cross founder Clara Barton, detailing a dream the nurse actually had more than 45 years after the Civil War ended. Two days before I died, I dreamt I was back in battle. Was up to my knees in blood. I saw death as it is in the battlefield. Poor boys with their arms shot off, their legs gone, lying on the cold ground with no nurses and no physicians to do anything for them. As Pullman talks, dancers move their bodies behind her. It's an enthralling combination, one Liz Lerman says she's been embracing more and more in her work through the years. Realistic theater doesn't seem real to me, and pure dance doesn't seem real to me either. Because I think mostly we live in a world between sort of concrete things and abstractions. I guess what I'm saying is I think the movement and the, the language together, it's not that in real life that would happen, but it feels more true to what our experience is in real life. Lerman further examines this idea in the way she has audiences enter the theater. Instead of coming in through the back doors and finding your seat, you go backstage and the characters are kind of on display. And uh, it's all set up as the Civil War, so it's a little bit like you're in your own attic. You're in your own history. After that, you move on to the actual stage. And you're in the present time, and then you go take your seat, and then you live between these worlds. Lerman blurs lines even more with her casting. In addition to professional performers, including Tamara Pullman's husband, Bill Pullman, whose name might ring a few bells, Lerman has brought on several people who haven't acted or danced professionally, but they've certainly experienced war firsthand. We have a pool of veterans, one of whom will perform each night. Two of them are amputees, and uh, another is the nurse from Vietnam. They first appear when audience members come out from backstage. They uh, spend time with Bill. There's a big part where you just listen to them talk on a bench, and then you sit down. And then uh, you get to hear their story as time goes on. And their story isn't just about what they went through in the midst of war. It's also about what they went through when they came home. Many, many, many people come back and re-enter their lives. I'm not sure that's even good language. It's like it's you never re-enter what you were. A lot of people have really difficult times. 
That's why Liz Lerman hopes Healing Wars will encourage audiences to cross the gap she believes exists between veterans and civilians who don't think they want to open up. I've met a fair number of veterans who say, contrary to the notion, you'll never understand me. They say, actually, you could if you listened. And as Healing Wars suggests, sometimes listening involves not just your ears, but your eyes, your mind, and ultimately, your heart. Healing Wars runs June 6th through the 29th at Arena Stage in Southwest D.C. For more information and to see a short video of Liz Lerman and Bill Pullman discussing the show, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We'll travel now from southwest D.C. to northwest, to Columbia Heights. If you're in that neighborhood on a weekday afternoon and you head to the intersection of 14th and Irving Streets, chances are good you'll see a bunch of guys hunched over a chessboard. This standing sidewalk chess match has happened every weekday afternoon for more than a decade. It started as a way to keep sidewalk vendors busy during lulls in business. But as Lauren Ober tells us, it's become a way for neighborhood newcomers to interact with old-timers, even if they don't speak the same language. Victor Savinkoff and Jorge Belloso stand over a makeshift chess table and stare. And stare. And stare. This game between the older Russian and the much younger Salvadoran is taking forever. Both men seem deep in thought, calculating their next move. The two players have an audience of one. Quentin Gatling, a sidewalk vendor selling hats and bags and essential oils, has left his table for a second to watch. But this isn't exactly a spectator sport, since there's not really a whole lot happening. Now, if Gatling was playing, it'd be a different story. The man is a regular on this chessboard, which sits on the sidewalk outside of a Bank of America. That means he's fast, and he's not the only one. We're not playing on the clock, but some people play quick and some people play slow. Yeah, I'm used to playing on the clock. Like most of these guys, I don't don't think that um, they're used to playing on the clock. That's John Israel. Like Gatling, he's regular on this table. He's developed his chest to be speedy. If we play like five minutes a game, I'll probably beat most of them because I'm used to playing like that. But Israel concedes that sometimes slow and steady does win the proverbial race. Now, we got some good players up here that's not fast chess players. You know, they'll take their time and they'll beat you. They'll look at everything on the board, every move that you're making and why you making it and all that. The Columbia Heights sidewalk chess game has been happening for at least the past 13 years, every weekday in the spring and summer. Assuming it's not raining or oppressively hot and humid, these guys, and they are all guys, will be out from 3 to 6 in the afternoon playing chess. Their chessboard is a homemade job. Well, we have a guy that brings the table up here, and uh, it's been around for years. It's made out of, like, the material that a stop sign is made out of. And it's like a, a, a bar stool that it sits on, an old broken-up bar stool that it sits on. <laughs> Israel explains how the standing game started. 
we grew up around here. We've been around here all our life, and that's what we've been doing on this street. We've been doing this for years. Israel lives in the Trinidad neighborhood of Northeast D.C., but he works at the giant grocery store in Columbia Heights and grew up just a couple of blocks from where they play chess. The game is open to anyone who passes by and wants to stop and take the regulars on. That's how Victor Sabinkoff and Jorge Belloso happen to be playing each other this afternoon. Catch it on the right day, and the game can have a United Nations feel to it. No English needed if you speak the language of rooks and knights. Over the years, the demographics of Columbia Heights have shifted tectonically. As one of the most rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods in the district, the Upper 14th Street Corridor has seen a drop in the black and Hispanic populations as the white population has spiked. John Israel has watched the change from his perch at the chessboard. I remember when it was just mostly African-Americans. You had a couple of Jamaicans and a couple of Cubans. Israel recalls that the bank they're playing in front of used to be a post office back before the behemoth D.C.-USA shopping complex moved in. All the development hasn't changed their game, though, except for making the sidewalks a heck of a lot more crowded. Even during construction, Israel says, the regulars found a way to keep playing chess. Well, you know, time change, and people have to change with the time. You know, it don't bother me not one bit. I welcome it. You know, I like it, you know. It's, it's bringing business to the city, you know, and it make, it's making the city better, more safer, all that. You know? I like it. There are other places in D.C. where chess players can get a game, DuPont Circle for one, Though you better be prepared to bring it at DuPont because that chess is no joke. And there's a park with chess tables at 14th and Girard Northwest, but the games there are less regular. Here at 14th and Irving, though, if you can find a place on the crowded sidewalk, then you're welcome to a game at this table. Checkmate. I'm Lauren Ober. wrap up today's show with our monthly look at the region's literary life. Book end. In this edition, Jonathan Wilson sits down with novelist Maud Casey. Casey spent much of her childhood in the D.C. area, and after shipping off to college up north and spending time on the West Coast, she's back and says she's here to stay. Casey teaches creative writing at the University of Maryland and has just published her fourth novel, a historical work inspired in part by the birth of the science of psychiatry. She spoke with Jonathan in the courtyard of her apartment building in Woodley Park, and they talked about the real-life case that spurred her imagination and what it was like growing up with two parents who were accomplished writers themselves. So let's talk about your latest book. It's called The Man Who Walked Away. It's about a real historical character, at least based on that. It's a complex story, but pretty fascinating. Explain how you discovered it and then why you thought it would make a good novel. It all began with this wonderful, wonderful book by Ian Hacking called Mad Travelers, which is about the way that psychiatric diagnoses arise in a particular moment for political, cultural, social reasons. I'm really reducing his very nuanced argument. But it featured this case study, the patient of which was a man unbelievably named Albert Dada, 
And he walked in a kind of semi-trance state throughout large parts of Europe. He always had a home in Bordeaux. This was 1886, at the dawn of psychiatry. And he would walk sometimes 50 miles at a time without eating, without sleeping. And he would arrive in this public square or that one, often countries away from home, and he wouldn't know how he got there. So he was pretty tired and pretty upset. And after years and years and years, he finally took himself to an asylum in Bordeaux where he encountered a doctor, and the doctor treated him. So the story itself was was so kind of gripping and odd, and, and this idea of, of being lost in the world and lost to yourself I found very moving. But the thing that made it possible for me, or at least a little bit possible, to think of it as a, as a novel or something that I might explore as a novel was in the back of Hacking's book is an appendix in which he has transcribed um, the case notes of, of the doctor. And, and some of those case notes involve Albert Dada telling his story in his own voice. And the way he told his story was really, really peculiar. He told his story very lyrically. It was very repetitive. But it was also as if he were telling the story of someone else's great adventure. And that discrepancy between the story he was telling and what clearly was, you know, a lot of pain, that was where I could kind of wedge my novelist imagination. You said you had a little bit of trepidation entering the historical sphere. In some ways, I'm really, one of the things I'm really grateful for uh, in relation to this book, is it it has opened me up to this to this uh, idea of being more in conversation with the world, being more in conversation with so-called real stories. You know, I lean toward. I mean, I think historical fiction is is a big tent, um, and the this book that I've written is you know it's not, it's not a mirror reflecting um, that historical moment, but but my hope is it's it's. Uh, that I've captured the atmosphere, that I've captured the, the, the gist of that moment. And then, more than anything, my hope was to, to kind of create a, a visceral experience for the reader that, allowed, that allows the reader to, to enter into uh, an unusual sensibility and an unusual way of moving through the world. So I like that idea of of kind of valuing the imagination and valuing the intersection of the imagination with a real historical moment and seeing what what comes of that. So let's go back to your childhood in terms of thinking about wanting to be a writer and how early that started. Now, for people who don't know, your father is a pretty accomplished novelist on his own, you know, won the National Book Award in 1989 for Spartina. I'm wondering, you know, writing can be a very solitary thing. So... How did what your parents did and what your dad did, how did you pick up on that? I mean, did he talk to you about it? Did you read? Or was it just kind of seeing him and seeing how happy he was made you want to do it? Well, you know, both my parents are, are writers. And and interestingly and fortunately for me, I think they're very different writers. And so they provided very different models. Um, I've got to say that writing, it's a, it's a secretive vocation. So having people wander around mumbling to themselves and then locking themselves in rooms for long periods of time demanding silence didn't actually shed a lot of light on the process. That said, my house was full of books. I was constantly read to. There was a sense that my parents um, truly taught me the value of the imagination 
you know, they, they gave me uh, permission to believe that that a book, uh, that a life in books and a life in writing was a valuable life and a possible life. So I'm, I'm really grateful to them for that. But then it took, I, I had to get out of that house before I could actually write something of my own. That was novelist Maud Casey talking with Jonathan Wilson. You can hear more of Casey's conversation with Jonathan, including a clip of her reading from her latest book on our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Lauren Ober, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, and Kavitha Cardoza, along with our intern Tyler Daniels, to whom we bid a very fond farewell as he graduates from George Washington University and heads on to further adventures in journalism. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. And thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection. Or you can subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show about the district's public hospital-turned-homeless shelter, D.C. General. We'll get an inside look at this facility that houses hundreds of families and find out how some of them got there. We'll investigate what would happen if the shelter were to be shut down, and we'll consider what it's like to live at D.C. General as a child. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.